All right, great to see you. If you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to key our study off of the first 11 verses. As Brent said, this is something that I've been looking at quite a bit uh, in this year and thinking about especially what our heritage has been and how I know I was taught when I was growing up and what I have seen taught in the years since then for the most part. And it just struck me that we have missed a lot of the parts of what the gospel is and the gospel of the kingdom. So it's interesting to me that uh, the first chapter of Acts and in fact throughout the book of Acts there are a number of threads and themes that are brought up that we tend not to notice. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Acts is probably the one book you have possibly studied more than any other book of uh, the New Testament. It's something we, uh, we in our churches have tended to look at a lot. And we look at it for the conversion stories, and we look at it for the day of Pentecost and the starting of the church, and we even memorize the missionary journeys and uh, all of those things. And we look at it. In fact, you'll, if you look at a uh, pattern of the New Testament, they'll say Gospels, and then Acts will be history, and then there'll be epistles, and then there'll be prophecy to uh, talk about the book of Revelation. And so we look at uh, Acts and we say, well, there's our inspired history book. And, and so when we read it, we read it like a book and we read it like a history book and we just take it as, that's interesting, that's interesting, oh cool, there's the way first century Christianity was and so that's what we want to be is we want to be like first century Christianity and then we let it go. Uh, unfortunately, that is... Uh, a pretty terrible way of approaching Acts because Acts is a letter first off and it was written to a real person a guy named Theophilus and Luke in both his letter called the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts has a very uh, narrow attention as to what he's trying to do uh, for Theophilus and if we think of Theophilus as uh, possibly a Roman official since he's called most excellent Theophilus the same kind of uh, title that uh, Felix was given in uh, Luke's second account. And, and so if he's a Roman, a Roman official, he has all kinds of questions and all kinds of concerns as to how he would be accepted in a Jewish uh, sect, if you will, and a Jewish movement that uh, is playing out within the Roman Empire. And certainly how would that affect uh, someone like him? And how is this affecting the Roman Empire? It seems that everywhere Christianity is preached, everywhere it's taught, there's riots, there's persecutions, there's things uh, rising up, and that's certainly not something a Roman would be happy with. And then there's a lot of different questions like that. And then it's important, of course, for Luke to show Theophilus how uh, this is going to tie in with all the world, Gentiles included. So anyway, it just struck me as that I, as I am reading Book of Acts in a different light, as a letter and as something that would connect to the Old Testament prophets that there's a number of interesting things that we we have possibly missed. At least I have. You may know all about this and just be, you know, when you get done, you go, 
dude, that was basics to me. And boy, would I be happy if I heard you say that. Because uh, then I'd know that I'm out to lunch. And, uh, that, would be, that would be good on this particular point. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to walk. We're going to walk through this uh, together, and, and I'm, I'm, you're, you're certainly welcome to say, "Hey, could I ask a question or anything?" That would that would be that would be great, or make a comment or something like that. All right, let's read these first eleven verses, and then we're, we're going to talk about this and how uh, some of the things that it ties into to God's kingdom. Uh, verse one in the first book or first account of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed in his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have, as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, let's, let's, let's look at this from a little different angle than maybe we would normally look at it. Uh, uh, the first thing that I think is interesting just to see is where this has a kingdom emphasis. And, and that it goes all the way through this text. All 11 verses have key points just about in every verse that place the emphasis on the kingdom. Now, that, that's, not, that's not surprising uh, to us in a lot of ways, simply because we know the prophets and we know uh, all the way through the Old Testament there were prophecies about the coming kingdom. That is certainly evident, but that's not something we think about. So during this 40 days, there's two main things that we see, uh, well, a couple of main things that we see uh, Luke emphasizing. The first thing I want you to see is this, these first words, the first account of Theophilus was about everything Jesus began to do and teach. So emphasize on the word began. Uh, if Luke was about everything Jesus began to do and teach, then Acts is about everything Jesus continued to do and teach. You can look at the ascension in verses 9 through 11 as the critical pinnacle point between Jesus' earthly ministry, which was covered in the book of Luke, and ended with his ascension, by the way. Luke's account ends with his ascension, and then Acts begins with his ascension. So that would be that that pinnacle point where this is everything Jesus did on earth. Now we're going to transition to everything Jesus did in heaven. So that's a whole nother uh, lesson to think about, but when you look at the book of Acts, you will notice numerous passages where it constantly emphasizes, and the Lord was with them, and the Lord did this, and the Lord did that, and and you you consistently have emphasis that Jesus is still working. 
Now, when the book of Acts ends, does anybody here imagine that Jesus just, okay, now he stopped working? Of, of course not. Uh, that is continuing on today. Well, do we think of it that way? I, I think, for me, my tendency has been to think about it in terms of, well, uh, he, he's reigning as king, and now he's just kind of sitting back, he's got his feet up, and, and he's waiting until God says, okay, time to return. And, and so in the meantime, all of us are doing our thing, and he's kind of waiting for that day when he comes back and goes, kaboom, okay, now we'll do the judgment and everything, which that's not the picture you see in the book of Acts, and certainly not the picture of a reigning king. So uh, this is about all Jesus began to do and teach the book of Luke. This is what Jesus is continuing to do as the reigning king in heaven. And we need to think more in those terms. I'd like to flesh that out a little bit more uh, as, as we go on. Um, so a couple of things you see here. First off, there is the proof of his bodily resurrection, appearing to them for 40 days, and these infallible proofs of the resurrection. Now, obviously, he cannot preach that he is, and his apostles cannot preach, that he is reigning as king if he didn't really raise from the dead. So, you need absolute proof. He didn't raise from the dead. There is no king. There is no kingdom. Uh, this is, is critical proofs. By the way, I get a little, little side note here. But as you go through the various sermons that you see in the book of Acts, there are two central messages. He raised from the dead and he's reigning as king. That's the two central messages. Uh, the incredible importance, if we just ask the question, why did people in the first century, in the book of Acts, what caused them to repent and be baptized? What caused them to become Christians? They were pricked in their hearts. They were pricked in their hearts about their sin. Okay, true. What else would have caused them to become Christians? I wonder if uh, teaching of John the Baptist sort of helped them to identify what was sin. Prior to that, though, the law helped them even on a greater scale to identify what God didn't want of their life. And so, if that was in their heart, that it would have been easier for them to have been influenced when John came back and baptizing like he did and preaching like he did, so fiery. People probably communicated with each other, and maybe at that point some of them started really thinking. Okay, no, no doubt that, that John's ministry preps people, gets people ready. You know, in Acts chapter 2, though, you're dealing with people who actually, uh, and in chapter 3, who Peter and John and the apostles accuse of murdering Jesus. Okay, so uh, he convicts them of that, convicts them of their sin of murdering Jesus. What, you're hitting all right, what really converts them? He's raised from the dead. That's what really converts them. <coughs> now, think about this. How many of us did a study of the resurrection proofs before we decided to follow Jesus. Hmm. That really hits me hard. 
because those people were convinced and we need and you want a study to do here's a great study to do go through the book of Acts look at the gospels but go through the book of Acts and figure out why those people were so convinced of the resurrection that it caused them to turn and serve Jesus that's really really important so that's another subject we can follow but we, I don't want to go that way this but I'm just bringing up as a side note the importance of really knowing that he raised from the dead that is one of their preaching points that should be one of our preaching points if he raised from the dead then that is that makes him the Lord I mean what if he didn't raise from the dead he's not the Lord everything centers on that point of course Paul points that out in first Corinthians 15 so th- this is this is a really important issue that is brought up right here by Luke the many infallible proofs and the second thing that you see there is his mention of the instruction that he gives about the kingdom now here is where this struck me as well uh, you and I have for years and as long as you've been a Christian you've probably talked a whole lot more about church than you have king uh, in fact Church is our more common word to use. When we think about the kingdom, in fact, some, and it was taught this way for years and years and years, I don't hear it taught that way as much anymore, but if you said to a group, okay, tell me what the kingdom is, the immediate answer would be, that's the church. And that is also erroneous. That, that is not what is being referred to. Church is just a nondescript non-religious term that just talks about a group of people. Kingdom refers to a king and a ruler and and an entirely different situation. Not that citizens of the kingdom aren't the church, that's certainly true, but we don't want to think that way if we're really going to understand what's going on. And So notice in this particular text that he speaks for 40 days about the things concerning the kingdom. Now, it's interesting to me that here is our first, I think, major application here, and that is that we think so much about church that we forget that this is about the kingdom. And thinking about the kingdom is far more important than simply thinking about a local group of people that work together or worship together, or even thinking about all the people who are Christians in the whole world. Because kingdom gives us purpose. Kingdom gives us the meaning and the end result. Kingdom gives us an idea of why God did any of this. Kingdom gives all of those analogies. And again, that's what we'll follow up with. For example, if you read all the gospel accounts, the word kingdom is used 158 times in four gospel accounts. You want to take a wild guess how many times the word church is used in the four gospel accounts? Two. Two. So if this was a uh, football game, it'd be a wipeout. You know, kingdom 158 to church two. <laughs> that, that would be a massacre, right? So what is going on in our minds when we have talked so much about church and so little about kingdom when all the gospel accounts together have totally emphasized kingdom? In fact, of the two places where the word church is used, I would argue that one of those places isn't even referring to the New Testament church. 
chapter uh, chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, when he says, take it to the church. Well, who would they, who would they be thinking about? Just the assembly of Jews. <laughs> That'd be the idea there. So really, Matthew 16, 18 is probably the only place, and he does connect it with the coming kingdom there. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. All right, so kingdom is the is the pervasive view throughout the text. Now, when you tie that in, then also to Luke's account here uh, in this book, just compare the fact that chapter one verse four uh, begins with he was speaking to them for forty days about the kingdom, and then you go over to the very last uh, part of Acts and, and just the last couple of verses there, and you see then. The, the scripture uh, telling us in verse 30 of Acts 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so you have this, this picture of the book of Acts or the letter of Acts to Theophilus is bookended with kingdom and kingdom. Now, that is a, a really important way to approach any Bible study. When you pick up Romans, for example, and you read the first, say, the first uh, 11 verses, uh, and uh, right through the Thanksgiving reception, then you'll read the very end of the book of Romans. And what you're going to see is he bookends it with the obedience to the faith to all nations. And when you do that, you say, aha. I bet you his theme is about the obedience to the, to the faith of all, to all nations. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is, and that's what you have here. With this, you have this theme of the of the kingdom. Okay, so what exactly is the message? And if I if I were to say to you, um, uh, tell me what you would tell a friend if they said, "Teach me the gospel." We would probably come up with things like, okay, well, let me tell you to believe in Jesus, and uh, you need to repent, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and there's the, there's the gospel. And that would only be the response to the gospel that would really be the gospel. So take a little quick journey with me, and just notice something. For example, in Acts 2, when you see Peter preaching... You will notice that he gets he gets down to uh, uh, verse verse thirty two there, and he says, "This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this which you see in here." And then he quotes Psalm one ten and verse thirty four and thirty five, where the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit at my right hand." until I make your enemies your footstool. What is he teaching them? He's now king. Jesus is now king of the kingdom and he's reigning on his throne. So there's his big concluding message. Yes, you killed him. You killed Jesus, but Jesus is the king. Uh, Take take a quick look at the next one. Chapter 4 and verse 24. When the apostles come together and pray to God after they've been threatened by Peter, I mean by the Sanhedrin Council, and Peter had been threatened. They come come together, and in verse twenty four, the scripture says, "And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage, 
and the people's plot a vain thing, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. What psalm is that from? Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is all about the enthronement of King Jesus, of the, of the Messiah. So what, what did they bring? What, they take Psalm 2 that referred to the nations battling against God to keep Him from putting His King on the throne because they wanted their King on the throne and they want to take the kingdom away. And so what did they quote? They quote, Lord, they're threatening us and You said in Psalm 2 that You would laugh at them and still set Your, your King on the throne and that You would crush them. And that's what we're praying. Bam. He brings it right back to who's sitting on the throne, who's reigning, and what's the result then of him reigning. Another is chapter 5 and verse 30. When they're again before the council, and in 5.30, he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. The word right hand there indicating again that he has been placed on his throne. He is then the king. In chapter uh, 7, verse 55 and 56, when Stephen is being stoned, he says he looks up at the heaven. What's he see? Jesus standing but where? At the right hand of God. There's an indication again of his, of his enthronement. He's he's on the throne. Of course, an unusual condition where he's actually standing and not sitting. He was showing his concern uh, for Stephen in chapter eight and verse twelve. Uh, you see how the what caused the Samaritans uh, to repent, uh, telling us now when they when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized men and women. I have to tell you, for years and years and years, I read that passage and I thought, I don't know that I learned that when I was baptized. I don't know I learned that before I was baptized. But here is a statement of he taught them about the kingdom and he taught them about the authority of the Christ. That's what he's saying when he says in the name of Jesus Christ. He taught them the authority of the Christ in the king's kingdom. He is the king. And that was what was caused them to uh, to respond. And, and we could go through all of these. Uh, Peter to Cornelius does exactly the same thing. He refers to the exaltation of Jesus as king on the throne. The message to Antioch of Pisidia in chapter 13. Uh, that one I like. You might just look at it right quick. Chapter 13, 32. And uh, he says, And we bring you good news... And here, now just notice what you know. What, what's the gospel? Okay, that's good news. We bring you good news. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, when you go read the second psalm, what do you learn? You learn that God placed His Messiah on the throne. Paul says it happened at the resurrection. And when he places on the throne, he then uses those words, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. What was promised to David back in 2 Samuel 7 when he talked about raising a kingdom up for one of his sons? He'll be a son to him. 
He'll be a son to me and I'll be a father to him. It's a unique relationship that is there. And so when you see that unique relationship, what does he do for these people? He says, look, this is it. He's blessed us. Here's the good news. That God has set his king on the throne. That's the good news. That's the message of the good news. And that's not a message that we think about uh, very much. In chapter 19, verse 8, he's uh, there in, the, in Ephesus and he's persuading them about the kingdom of God. So again, all the way through, if we look at Acts, we're looking at the preaching of the good news that the kingdom now is in existence. And that's not something that we often think about when we consider the good news. So the second thing we just ask ourselves, what are we preaching? What are we teaching when we, we tell people about Jesus? And that's where we need to be very, very careful that we're not preaching, hey, you need to come to my church. Or that we're not preaching, uh, hey, uh, you need to repent and be baptized. Uh, trying to convert people to, uh, to, to the response to the kingdom before they've understood the importance of the kingdom and of the king reigning on the throne and what the end result of that is. What, what is their responsibility based on the fact that we have a king on the throne and he's established his kingdom? And even why is he established his kingdom? So that's what we want to talk about now. What really was the point of his of him establishing this kingdom? And I would suggest to you that probably the apostles up to this 40-day time are clueless about that as well. I mean, how many times they argue, uh, who's going to sit on the right hand and the left? Man, you're, you're, you're thinking very, very earthly, aren't you? But by this time, I'd suggest that they probably are. So in 1 through 6, 6 through 8, this is where they ask the question, Lord, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, I know Brent has talked about this with you because I, uh, he's, he's told me it. <laughs> I hear his son, so. But uh, uh, a lot of what, what are we a lot of times done with this passage? Oh, those dumb apostles—they still don't get it. You know, they're, they're talking about restoring the kingdom. Actually, we're the ones that's dumb <laughs> because we're thinking in terms that they're dumb by asking about the restoration of the kingdom. When in actuality, they recognize that that's what had been prophesied all through the Old Testament—that the kingdom was going to be restored when the Messiah came—and they're now understanding what's going on here. And so they say to him. Is this it? Are you now going to do it? And of course, you notice his answer. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, uh, he doesn't. He'd already been telling about the kingdom for forty days. He doesn't rebuke them. And in fact, later in chapter three, Peter even preaches about the restoration of the kingdom. He preaches that the, the kingdom is in the process of restoring. We'll look at that in a minute. But for right now, what is what is Jesus' answer? It's not for you to know. The time. He didn't say, "What are you talking about?" There's no restoration of the kingdom. That's all the way. He's not telling you to know the time. The time isn't. It's not in your authority. It's not. This is what is in God's. When that actually is going to take place. Look at chapter three in Peter's sermon. In chapter three, and uh, notice uh, in the midst of the sermon, especially verse nineteen. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That would identify in his first sermon the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So heaven receives Jesus until the restoring of all things. Uh, in Acts 2, it's, uh, it, we, we read it. He, he reigns at the right hand. He sits at the right hand until when? All enemies are placed under his feet. Okay? So he's reigning until all enemies. When all enemies are put under, his, put under his feet, restoration has taken place. We have the completion of restoration. We know in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy is death. And when death is destroyed, then what does he do? He takes the kingdom and he gives it back to the Father. Does that give you a hint as to why he's reigning? His whole purpose of reigning was to restore all things. That's the reason he's reigning. So, sometimes we get in the idea that, uh, well, okay, um, uh, the coming of the king, but we forget God already has a king. God's had a kingdom from the beginning. Who sat on God's kingdom throne? David, Solomon, whole lineage of kings of Judah sat on the throne of God. And it mentions it that way. But ultimately, Jesus sits on the throne, but He sits on the throne in a different way because He sits on the throne to actually restore all things. It was David couldn't do it. Boy, we had a lot of hopes to the first ten chapters of Second Samuel that David was going to do it. And then Bathsheba came along in chapter 11, 12 and ruined the whole restoration process. <laughs> you know, and, and that's just an illustration all the way through the kings. Failure, failure, failure. We need a king who can actually restore all things. So the purpose of the kingdom of Christ, of his reign, is to fix it. It can't be fixed without him. And so there is, there, there is our, there is our ultimate purpose. And then you see this, this conclusion here when Jesus says, not for you to know the times and seasons, but then he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's the restoration of the kingdom. There's how the kingdom gets restored. Is the gospel is spread through that whole thing. But, who generates that? You'll receive power when? Holy Spirit. Okay, now, what do we generally just think? Oh, uh, let's see, Acts 2, they spoke in tongues, and... Okay. No... Because what what you're going to find out is is that all the way through the did I miss something back here? I probably did. Well, that was not what I was trying to do. Oh yes, that last part there on from now. When he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he talks about it back in verse five. Verse 4, verse 5. When he talks about the coming of the Spirit and then here, that is a trigger for the fact that the Holy Spirit was the one who triggers the restoration. You go back to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32 and verse 9. 
and you see the picture of the beginning of you see the picture of what restoration looks like from an Old Testament text. Here is a picture, obviously, of how Assyria and even Babylon would create a wilderness as they destroyed the nations of Israel and Judah. And he says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder. You complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare. And tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields. For the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, in all the joyous houses. In the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. The whole nation's a wilderness. Until, verse 15, the Spirit is poured upon on us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, etc. So how long does the nation remain a wilderness? Until the Spirit is poured out. When the Spirit is poured out, then everything blossoms. That's the, the, the use of the word poured is very significant. Last year when Teresa and I were going back in California, we saw a site we had never seen before going across the California desert. It had rained for a solid month from monsoons that rarely happen out there that came up and rained on the California desert. And there were places where it was just, the whole desert was just green as far as you can see. I never saw anything like that in my life. And I usually you see some desert flowers now and then. It was just green. <laughs> we looked at each other and said, wow, what happens when a wilderness gets water? Well, that I thought about this text. You're just pouring out the Spirit, and the Spirit gives life and brings life, and the, the kingdom then starts in restoration process. And life is given, though, to who? Not specifically to the land, but the people. That's where life is given. This explains why in chapter 40 you see the picture of John the Baptist, and of course, probably followed this when you guys did Isaiah, but uh, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Why is John out in the wilderness when we meet him? Well, because that's a symbol of what the nation was. That's a symbol of the condition of the nation. So he's out in the wilderness. He's a voice crying in the wilderness, not just because it's a physical wilderness, because that's the condition of the nation itself. And what's he cry out? He cries out a picture of the coming of the Spirit, the coming of life, and the one who's going to actually baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring that life. So, let's just look at a little bit now the broad nature of the restoration of the kingdom. And look over in Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, and take a look then at just a couple of verses there just to remind us of, of what this kingdom restoration is in, it has involved in. So, Ephesians 4, 1, 4, I mean, excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 4. He says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has been blessed, blessed us in the beloved. The, the first thing we notice is that we are very much a part of this restoration process. 
uh, we are involved in. This happened before the world began as He chose us and predestined this and in love planned all of this. But now look down then at, uh, at verse 10 and notice uh, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10, He says this. Uh, verse 9 here, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. What's your conclusion from unite all things? What conclusion would you draw if God's plan is to unite all things? Say, yeah, that's right. The first conclusion you have is it's messed up. Things are not, are not united. Colossians, again, he actually says, reconcile all things. By the way, unite all things where? Not just on earth. In heaven. Things are filed up in heaven, too. Uh, in your study of Revelation, where, what, what do you, what do you learn is taking place in heaven? What, what, what kind of battle do you see? In Revelation 12, remember? You see, you see the battle. Michael and his angels battling against the, the dragon and his angels and the dragon is cast out, that serpent of old, and he, he loses his power. And, and and why? And he goes on, why do he lose his power? Because the authority of God's Christ has come. Conquering. So he's uniting all things, both in heaven and on earth. Sin and even going back before sin on earth all the way back to uh, wherever that was in eternity when God made all those angels and everything and Satan was very powerful and somehow challenged God and we don't have an ounce of information about that. We just draw that conclusion that God would have created everything good and then it happens that way. But all of that is part of it and we're part of this. And God's purpose then in restoration is not only here on earth, but also in heaven. He's bringing everything back together again. And in fact, that's exactly what we see in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, you see that battle. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? What are they trying to do? They're trying to conquer. God and His King and they're trying to take control and God is laughing at them saying I'm going to still set my King on the Holy Hill and you had better wake up kiss the Son lest He be angry with you is the picture but God is battling all those kingdoms um, this is probably something that I don't know if you talked about much or Brent's talked about much or anything but one of the interesting things, do you remember in the book of Daniel when uh, the angel came to answer Daniel's prayer? Why did it take him three weeks to get there? He was battling what? He was the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Yeah, yeah. And, and how many, when you first read that, did you just go, huh? <laughs> I mean, all of us going to go, what? what? What is he doing? And then after he gets done giving the answer, he says, now I've got to go battle the, the prince of the kingdom of, uh, of Greece. He's coming. And you go, what is going on? And that's where 
sometimes just you just have to jot this down enough time to look at it. But when you look at Deuteronomy 32 and you look at Psalm 82, you see that God had placed angels in control of nations. And they had the job of bringing God's word to these nations. And they had failed their mission. Jesus even quotes it in John 10, verse 34 and 35. Quotes the passage from Psalm 82. And says, I'm, I have come basically not to fail. And that's why you can call me a true son of God. I have come. And I will not fail my, my mission to bring the gospel to the nations. But you see this little thing, and you put all that together, and you go, that's really crazy. There are spirit beings that, not against our free will, but are still certainly working and battling. When you look at the book of Revelation, I'm really going off track here, that's okay, we're having fun. Uh, uh, When you look at the book of Revelation, and uh, you see the allies in Revelation 13, who are the allies of the dragon? Who are his allies? Two kind of beasts, right? What's the first beast? Sea, sea beast, where he comes up out of the sea. And he represents it. It's the military might of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Government. The power and might of the military of government. Then there's an earth beast who rises up. He's also called what? False front. Here's his two allies. Anything changed? False religion, power of a government. Now you're understanding why we have a political season the way we have <laughs> Now you're understanding why we have had uh, presidents at times who battle against us and against Christians. Satan is doing everything he can, whether it's in America or in the rest of the world, and we see it more plainly, of course, unless the rest of the world. He uses government when government will allow it to. He uses government in order to be an ally to the serpent. That's the two powers that Satan's constantly doing. False religion and the power of uh, military might or government through laws or things like that. So it's just interesting to see that, uh, that picture, and this is what the Lord is doing. He's restoring then all things, and His restoration has to do with battling these entities, battling kings like the Roman Empire and like the Jewish government. And what did Revelation talk about the throwdown of? The Jewish government, the Roman Empire. What's Daniel talking about throwdown of? The Jewish Jewish nation and the Roman Empire. And these are the battles that he's having with them. And he says, I'm going to win. And I'm always going to win. And that, of course, is something that you see. In Isaiah's restoration of chapter 11, the key to the restoration there is the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Remember that? The earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. In fact, when you just just check out a couple of things there in Isaiah 11, you see the method by which the kingdom is restored. How does the king go about restoring his kingdom? Why does the wolf dwell with the lamb in chapter 11, verse 6, and the cow bearing and the bear graze together in verse 7, and the serpent is completely become uh, helpless and, and, and harmless? Because, he says in verse 9, 
before the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How's that going to happen? Go to chapter 12, and he says down in verse 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises of the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. See the picture? So, how, how is the kingdom being restored? Well, when you look at the book of Acts, how is it being restored? Well, there's 3,000 in Acts 2, there's 5,000 in chapter 4, and then you just keep the march goes on until it's it's multitudes, and then they're multiplying, and then persecution rises up, and it doesn't change a thing. They go everywhere preaching the gospel, and it just keeps going and going and going and going. And have you ever noticed how the book of Acts doesn't end? It just all of a sudden stops. And, and, and you're going, well, wait a minute, Paul. Uh, wait a minute, Luke. We, we didn't get to see what happened with Paul. We didn't get to see the rest of the story. We didn't get... You, you and I do the rest of the story. The people in the second century and the third and the fourth, they did the rest of the story. We're the rest of the story. And it keeps going until all enemies are put up in respect. But how's the kingdom been restored? Remember in chapter 12 and verse 11, how do how did the Christians conquer? Three things. By the blood of the Lamb. Can you think of the second one? Word of their testimony. The third one. Love not their lives, even to the dead. Here's how we conquer. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and we love not our lives, even to death. We're not going to be silenced. And we're not going to be silenced even if it costs us our life. We're not going to be silenced. That's restoration. That's how restoration takes place. You and I are critical to the restoration. Why? Because just as you learned all the way through the book of Isaiah, whatever the Messiah does, the Messiah's people do. He's a light to the nations. We're a light to the nations. Whatever the Messiah does, the Messiah's people do. And so we follow the same pattern as our master. And so we, we keep seeing that picture over and again. And uh, we would not do that, but Amos 9, 11 through 15, talks about he's going to raise up the tabernacle of David. It was thrown down. What is that? That's restoration. And it was quoted in Acts 15. James says this is it. And restoration in both Isaiah 11 and in Amos 9 had to do with restoration not only of us and God, but us together. That's how the bear and the calf graze together. The wolf and the lamb are together and all that because we've all been wolves and lambs and whatever. You know, and we, we can come together. And Jew and Gentile comes together. All that all that fits into one pattern. Alright, finally, just, just to bring this all together, I want you to see the, the true emphasis on the enthronement of the king and what's involved here. So we see the ascension in Acts 2, and of course we read that and we say, well, yeah, Jesus had to go back to heaven and, uh, you know, that's why he went back up into heaven and he had to go back to heaven. and So that's what that's about. He went back to heaven. 
But if you look at it from a prophetic point of view, that is another emphasis or another trigger point or theme to tell us this is the enthronement of the Lord because that's what he talked about in Daniel 7. So go go back to Daniel 7 and and, and notice uh, the picture of what Daniel talks about and you know from the recent sermons, sermons that Brent has given that, that Daniel, the theme of Daniel is basically the, uh, the, the fact that God rules. He's ruling even though Nebuchadnezzar is there. He is ruling. He will rule. And he even sits on the kingdom, the thrones of the kingdom of men, even the least of men. And, and he is the authority. He is the ruler. And they're all the way through that's the picture. I mean, Daniel in the lion's den is not a pretty story for children. Daniel in the lion's den is to say that God rules. And, that, and that's, that's the constant emphasis uh, all the way through. And so when you get to Daniel 7, and Daniel sees this vision, you see the, the, the connection to uh, the ascension of Christ back uh, over later in the New Testament in chapter 1 of Acts. And so chapter 7, verse 13 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Of course, Luke doesn't directly tell us this, but you can't help but think, when the twelve stood there and watched him and just kept gazing into heaven, you wonder if it didn't just Daniel 7, 13, 14 hit them square between the eyes and say, wow, this is it. He is now, at this moment, being enthroned as king. And of course, that's exactly what Peter preaches later in Acts 2. He says, having ascended into heaven... He has received the Holy Spirit and has poured out this which you now see here and see. He's enthroned as King. He's Lord and Christ. To say that He's Christ, to say He's anointed, to say He's anointed, is to say He's King. And so that's what He pronounces to the people. That is what triggers the people to say, men and brethren, what should we do? You know, just think about it. You can stand up all day long and say you killed Jesus of Nazareth. And they might sit there and go, so what? What do I care? Who's he? He was just a criminal. He's some kook that said he was the son of God. But when you prove that he raised from the dead, and that he fulfilled the prophecies, and he's poured out this which you see in here, and he's a, he has ascended to heaven, and is reigning, and he will reign till all enemies are under his feet, what's your next thought? Psalm 2. Kiss the son, he'll be angry. You are in big trouble if you do not respond now to the king. And so when Daniel gives this, he gives it, of course, from heaven's point of view. One like the Son of Man comes to the ancient of days with the clouds. Luke gives it from earth point of view. One like the Son of Man leaves the earth and comes, goes with the clouds back into heaven to the enthronement then of the king. Skip on down to, uh, to verse uh, 26 and 27. Uh, here is the battle, of course, of this fourth kingdom and the kings that come out of it. And in verse 26, he says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, 
to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And that other one really strikes me. The power is going to be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So here is the power of not only the king, but the kingdom. So I want to draw two important conclusions here. Uh, first off from Psalm 2, if he's reigning on the throne, kiss the sun, lest he be angry. We have great promise, obviously, of grace and mercy, and this is not was not given to say, boy, am I going to watch you and I hope I can throw you in hell if I catch you do something wrong one time. That's not the purpose of that. In fact, Isaiah 11 and 12, one of the purposes of the reign of King Jesus is the great comfort He gives. We just read part of that. We drink from the wells of salvation. But we drink from the wells of salvation because we respect and honor the King. Because we come to the King and we kiss the Son because we're enamored with His what He's done and how He's destroyed the enemies. And He has destroyed the enemies, one, to bring justice to us. So with that, we drink of the wells of salvation. We are comforted. He's our salvation. He's our, he's our song. He's our strength. He's all those things. So, but that is the challenge. Who's Jesus to most people today? He's Jesus. He's really nice. And he, he lets me do whatever I want to do. No. <laughs> He's King Jesus. And you must submit to King Jesus. Or he will be angry. And so there's a very strong message there. The second thing that I think is really applicable for us today is how we treat this. We are not just a group of people. We are not just a church. We're a kingdom of people who are on the march. We're a kingdom of people who are on the march, as he talked about in chapter 7 and verse 27, under which the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven are given to us, the people of the saints of the Most High. There is no reason for us to be afraid. We hope we hold all the cards because our Lord is King over all the kings of the earth. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be silent. We're always going to be gentle and we're going to be nice and all of that. But we're not going to compromise His Word and when people bring up all the crazy things they're bringing up today from gay marriage, so living together before you're married, and all those things, we're not going to keep silent. Sorry. We're going to say, look, the Lord, the King, the King has said not to do that. And we have to respect the King. So all of that done to the praise of His glory. And that is the, I think, beautiful picture and I tried to give you just a little taste of this, but if you will reread Acts from that point of view, 
you're going to see a jillion things that tie in to themes or threads or purposes that were already talked about in the Old Testament, including baptism itself. I would suggest to you that there are many, many baptism analogies that are that prepare the people for that interesting little act, you could say, that that in, in which God cleanses us uh, from our sins. Okay. I think we're about out of time.